0: And so I think, first of all, acknowledging that we need a new way forward, not just trying to get back to the way things were. And then from there, I think one of the things that's hopeful about moments of crisis is that they provide opportunities and incentives for major systemic change. And I really believe that's what we need right now, is major change to the system itself, not just getting, you know, quote unquote, the right people elected and that kind of thing, but looking at our system. And how it works and how it can work better.
1: That is the voice of Ryan Reinbrandt, Ryan author, professor of political science, Colin College. He joins me today to discuss the presidential precedent of the first one hundred days and the peaceful transfer of power. You're listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Professor Reinbrandt, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. We had a conversation not long ago discussing the founding assumption of the U.S. Constitution and the principal idea of the pursuit of happiness. We have since concluded our presidential election and currently in the process of transferring power. Historically speaking, can you tell us what the peaceful transfer of power looks
0: like? A peaceful transition of power, that's us apart from things like dictatorships and so on and so forth. You know, that's been a constant since the beginning. George Washington famously, you know, served two terms. He was popular enough he could have served probably until he passed away. And as the story goes, he wanted to get that experiment in democracy going and have a peaceful transition of power. Now, honestly, he was probably exhausted from a war in, in two terms and sitting between a bickering, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. But the point remains that we don't overthrow a government and install a new one that we peacefully transition from one to another. So it's always been fundamentally important. Truly cooperative transitions didn't really start until Eisenhower. That's not to say that they were always contentious or difficult, but it wasn't generally the norm that a president would actively, or a White House would actively work with the incoming administration to help them get things set up and that kind of thing. That really started with Eisenhower. And then we had the Presidential Transition Act in 1963 that really recognized the complexity of this. And really, the idea was country over party, right? That functioning of the country, particularly when it comes to things like national security, is more important than partisan differences and that kind of thing. And so, that Presidential Transition Act set up a whole bunch of things. Six months before the election, the president sets up the White House Transition Coordinating Council. The GSA provides funds, office space, support services. And that usually starts the day after the election, but obviously things were a little different this year. Each agency provides a senior civil servant to oversee that transition. They do background investigations for those who are going to have security clearance. You know, presidents start choosing their cabinet and that type of thing. And the hope is for kind of a seamless transition. Rarely is it ever seamless, but that's that's the hope.
1: Do you believe that in the United States we are too idealistic? about the peaceful transfer of power?
0: That's one of those things I don't know if you could be too idealistic about. That's an important ideal. Now, we need to be realistic about it and recognize human nature for what it is and that that's not always going to go smoothly and there's going to be you know, sometimes hard feelings. Sometimes that actually comes in the form of pranks. Famously, when Clinton transitioned to George W. Bush, some of the staffers pulled a variety of pranks from graffiti in the bathroom to removing the Ws from the computer keyboards that kind of harmless stuff where they take out those differences of opinion. But I think it's important to hold to that ideal that this isn't supposed to be about the good of a party or the the good of an individual president. It's about the good of the country. And as much as you may disagree with the incoming administration, the well-being of the country as a whole should override those kinds of differences.
1: According to Waters, 68% of Republicans believe the presidential election was rigged According to Monmouth, 61% of Republicans ask, believe the election was rigged. How do we deal with this distrust with the election results? How can we transition the country, not just the transfer of power at the presidential level, but within the citizenry?
0: There's a certain amount of responsibility at the top to recognize that you know, all of the investigations that have been done, none have turned up widespread voter fraud or manipulation that would have changed the outcome of the election. And as I say, I'm I'm kind of thankful that Trump administration actually launched these lawsuits because courts of law have to look at evidence, not presidential rhetoric, not anecdotes, not theoreticals about how voter fraud might have happened, but they have to look at actual evidence. And thus far, you know, the courts have found, generally speaking, not enough evidence even to warrant A court case. Most of these lawsuits have been tossed out because there simply is no evidence. President Trump's own attorney general has said now that there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud or manipulation that would have changed the outcome of the election. The president himself continues to make those claims. That information is out there. Those are the facts of the matter. At some level, the leaders have to acknowledge that. In the absence of that, It's certainly up to citizens to get their information from a variety of sources, sources with a reputation and a history of factual accuracy, but it's really hard to get everybody to do that. I think we're going to go into this incoming administration with a large portion of the country that has lost faith in the electoral system itself. And I think that's a very unfortunate and dangerous thing in a representative democracy because voting is kind of the fundamental element of a representative democracy. So What I would hope would happen is that they really start to, and this this is at the state level and at the national level, really start looking at addressing a lot of the problems that do exist with the electoral system. Because let's be clear, there's no such thing as a perfect electoral system. In particular, there have been concerns going back quite a while, especially with the advent of electronic voting machines, about things like a lack of oversight of the voting machines themselves where even election officials in most states can't look at the software inside those voting machines to see if it's been tampered with. The political ties of the companies that build these voting machines, that should be of a concern to everyone. The fact that companies that build the voting machines do give political contributions and have a stake in who wins these elections. The fact that a lot of our voting machines don't leave a paper trail, making accurate recounts very, very difficult. I think if they addressed a lot of those things in a very open and transparent and bipartisan way, that would help restore a lot of faith in the election system. States are the ones that really do the running of elections. And I think that should be high on the agenda of every state and the nation itself to secure the election system, to give faith. And, And again, I want to be clear that every investigation Every study, whether it's an academic study, Department of Justice study, state level studies, have found no evidence of widespread voter fraud. I think that information has to get out there too, making those reforms that are necessary and disseminating that information about what the truth is about the security of our electoral system.
1: There could be some misaccounting, but not in the multiple thousands. As William Barr mentioned, not enough to overturn the
0: election. There's a record of every single person who voted. They don't keep a record of how you voted, but there's a record of those who voted. And so if they were, for example, throwing out thousands of ballots or erasing thousands of electronically counted ballots, there would be a major mismatch between the number of people who voted and the number of votes counted. And we're not seeing that. So you hear these stories about, oh, they're buying absentee ballots in the trash or whatever. Even if those anecdotes were true, again, if that was happening on a large scale, there would be a huge mismatch between the number of people who showed up to vote and the number of votes that were counted. And there just isn't any evidence that that has happened. That's an important, important thing for people to look at when, when they hear these anecdotes about disappearing votes and that kind of thing.
1: Gabriel Sterling is a voting systems manager in the state of Georgia who also happens to be a Republican. We hear or see the video of him making this statement. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. Stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. And as you said, the court cases that have been filed just on the merits of them or the lack thereof of merit, they've been tossed out of court. Do you expect to see these numbers go down, these numbers that we see from Reuters, numbers that we see from Monmouth? 61, 68% of Republicans believe
0: the election was rigged. This is one of those instances that I really believe leadership matters, that the people on the ground are going to believe what their leaders tell them about what's happened. Prominent leaders in both parties acknowledge the fact that the courts have found no evidence of widespread voter fraud, that investigations have found no widespread evidence. The president's own attorney general has found no evidence of widespread voter fraud that would affect the outcome of the election. When those leaders acknowledge that the election Is over, that it was won fairly, then I think you'll see those numbers go down. Alternatively, if those leaders themselves don't do it, then perhaps their mouthpiece is in the media. Because let's be honest, there are media outlets who speak for one party and there's media outlets who speak for another party. And if those media outlets start reporting the facts of what happened on the ground, you might see those numbers go down. But as long as the political leaders and their surrogates in the media Push a narrative, those who follow those leaders and who get their information from those media sources are not going to change their minds on their own.
1: How does this impede the founding assumption, the pursuit of happiness, that the government thought it was its end or purpose to help facilitate?
0: In almost every way, that government exists to facilitate the well being of the people, the happiness of the people. Well, not of some of the people, not the people of one party or people of the other party the widespread well-being of the american people so long as politics is a game of my team versus your team slash and burn my team wins at any cost it's be very hard for the government to focus on the widespread well-being of the people the way that our electoral system is set up right now it tends to reward that behavior reward division and firing up your base kind of by any means necessary if we could get to that point Of country above party, reorienting again our goals to the well-being of the people, then government could do a great deal to facilitate the widespread well-being of the people.
1: What is the significance of the first 100 days?
0: The number 100 is pretty arbitrary. You know, it started with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was facing major, major crisis that required rapid action. And he made a speech in which he promised dramatic action in those first 100 days. And he achieved it passed an enormous number of bills. I think it was something along the lines of 78 bills that he signed, 13 of which scholars would consider major legislation. That's huge. And that was a major undertaking and a major accomplishment. And since then, we have applied that standard. The number 100 might be arbitrary, but there is some importance to that, which you might call a honeymoon period for the president, in that Historically, it's much easier for a president to get his agenda passed early on in the presidency. As the presidency goes on, it becomes more and more difficult for presidents to get their ideas adopted by Congress or passed into law and those types of things. And so it's not irrational or unreasonable to put some importance on those first hundred days and to assess how much a president gets done then, because from that point, it's going to be harder and harder for them to get things done. A whole lot can get in the way of getting things done in those first 100 days. Of course, one of the most important is who controls Congress, which party controls Congress. And so if a president has his party controlling both houses of Congress, you can see a lot of stuff get done in those first 100 days. Of course, especially these days with how divided the parties are, where they tend to just try to obstruct each other at any cost. If even one house of Congress is controlled by the other party from the president, you're going to see a lot of difficulty getting anything done, unless you have a president who is particularly skilled at working across the aisle and getting some bipartisan legislation. In the absence of getting legislation through, of course, presidents have other tools at their disposal, like executive orders. You can get some major things done with executive orders, but not like you can get done if you're getting laws passed. And certainly Joe Biden coming into the presidency has a number and scope of challenges that is rare for presidents to face. And so there's kind of a mix of an appetite and a need for a lot of bold action. There's going to be likely a level of obstruction of whatever the president wants to do that all presidents have faced in our history.
1: The United States of America may never look like it once did. How can we go forward? How do we move forward?
0: First of all, to acknowledge that going forward is the important thing. I think particularly since the COVID pandemic has really upended life for so many people in so many ways that there's sometimes a desire to go back to the way things were. And I use that analogy from the Bible of the Israelites escaping from slavery in Egypt, wandering the desert, and eventually saying, let's just go back to Egypt. Desperation sometimes causes those kinds of things. The right move is to keep going on to the promised land. It's important to acknowledge that moving forward doesn't mean getting back to the way things were, because let's look at the way things were. Partisan division ramping up over the course of decades, politics getting nastier and nastier and nastier. Since 1980, we've seen the economic security of the average American stagnate or even go down, average wages stagnating or going down, the number of Americans with a pension going down, inflation going up. The economic security of the average American has gone down and down. We've got a national debt that has been ballooning, you know, is now, I think, solidly above 150% of GDP. Things were not great prior to Mm -hmm. the COVID pandemic. And so I think, first of all, acknowledging that we need a new way forward, not just trying to get back to the way things were. And then from there... I think one of the things that's hopeful about moments of crisis is that they provide opportunities and incentives for major systemic change. And I really believe that's what we need right now is major change to the system itself, not just getting, you know, quote unquote, the right people elected and that kind of thing, but looking at our system and how it works and how it can work better. And I think fundamentally, we look at, in the electoral system, how we choose candidates matters. And the way we vote now In a single-member district, simple plurality system, also known as first-past-the-post or winner-take-all, provides incentives for the kinds of behavior we see out of our political leaders these days, this kind of ramping up of divisions and hatreds and turn out your base at all cost type of thing, incentives run away from cooperation and, and positive campaigning and those kinds of things. I think if you look at Congress itself, there are systemic changes that we could make that would make Congress work a whole lot better. I look at some of the things from my own state of Texas. The legislature has had some institutional things that have provided incentives for bipartisanship that I think would be very welcomed by the American people at the national level. Things like we had for a long time, this thing called the Senate two-thirds rule in Texas, where in order to even consider a bill, two-thirds of the senators had to sign on it, say, we'll consider it. Well, that provides... Not just an incentive, but a requirement to work across the aisle at some level and, and come up with common ground. So, to become speaker in the Texas House, you have to be willing to work with members of the other party. And you see speakers in the Texas House giving leadership positions to members of the other party. There's an incentive for bipartisanship. There are so many things that we could do at a systemic level that could ameliorate the problems that we see. Now, there's no silver bullet. There's no thing that's going to fix human nature and make everything perfect. But moving forward, my hope is that there will recognize the need for systemic change and take the focus off of my side versus your side. If I just get my party into power, everything will be glorious. And the other side, if they're in power, everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket, that kind of mentality. going forward for me means really looking at the system and how we can fix the system in a way that serves the country as a whole and not just particular parties and particular leaders.
1: January 20th, President-elect Joe Biden will be sworn into office. The nation will begin to move on in some form or fashion. If President Trump is not in attendance, what message does that send? Does he need to be there?
0: The message that it sends really is just an extension and intensification, I would say, of the division that has been ramping up for so long. We are at a point of division and hatred in this country that really is a dangerous situation to be in. And a gracious transition from one administration to another would send a signal to the American people, that once again, country over party, that the smooth functioning of this country is more important than my side versus your side. And there will be another election in four years and we'll try to win that election. But for right now, the well-being of the country is more important. If the president doesn't show up, it certainly doesn't help anything. My hope is that if that happens, that people would see that for what it is, one individual not losing graciously and leave it at that. The danger, of course, is that people will take that as a signal of something much more serious and that some people may use that as something of a call for more drastic, divisive, potentially even violent action. It would be unfortunate. It's survivable and it doesn't cause too much damage, um, but it certainly won't help anything. You
1: are a political science professor. You have a diverse classroom of students. I imagine there have been a number of teaching moments, learning opportunities throughout this whole situation. Could you highlight some of those teaching moments, some of those learning opportunities that you were able to point to and say, okay, this is an example of x, y, and z.
0: Yes. Whatever you think of Donald Trump for the last 4 years, he certainly has made things interesting. I think one of the hopeful things that ring out of this is I have never before seeing young people so interested, so engaged and looking for ways to understand what's going on and make a positive difference in what's going on. You mentioned I have diverse classrooms. I'm blessed to teach. I can hardly imagine racially, ethnically, religiously, politically, economically. My classrooms are like a little United Nations and it's an amazing thing to watch. When you talk about teaching moments, really less, I think, what I teach them than what they teach each other. There's something really amazing about this diverse group of young people getting to know each other and work together and help each other through projects over the course of four months and get to know each other as human beings and start to realize that, yes, there are things that they disagree passionately on, but they end up more often than not really getting to like each other as human beings and have fun together and find common ground, you know, in a whole lot of different areas. And they begin to see the division being fomented by politicians and the media for what it is, attempts to divide. The way things are set up now, division works very well for the media. It drives up ratings. Division works very well for politicians. It turns out their base. And the message that comes across to a lot of people is from those leaders and from the the media is that the other side is evil and stupid and misguided. And when these young people get to know each other, they realize that that's just not true, that we may disagree some very important very fundamental things these aren't evil people these aren't stupid people who think differently than me that have different values than me that have different economic interests than me but at the end of the day we're all human beings that i think is one of the most powerful teaching moments is when they realize that difference between what they see in the media and what the truth is about the people who disagree with them
1: professor reinbrandt i have enjoyed it as always Thank you for dropping by for today's conversation. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Ryan Reinbrandt, author, professor of political science, Collin College. For additional information on the founding assumption, visit www.academia.edu. That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank <smart noise>